The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Evening. Good to uh, be here with all of y'all this evening as we continue our study into the minor prophets. And tonight we're going to be in the book of Hosea. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. But I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are delighted and privileged to approach the scriptures, even in a a part of scripture that many of us are unfamiliar with. And we we wanna we wanna use this time, Lord, as as a real time of sharpening, as we are exposed to more and more of your word that maybe we've never been exposed to, maybe, maybe we've never even read before, that in new ways and in fresh ways and in new glorious, majestic, God-honoring ways, you would enlighten our minds and that you would engage our hearts to not only understand but to be changed and to live lives, leaving this, this room this evening, different people, more committed because of your faithfulness to us, to living for your glory. Help your text to be clear tonight as it comes out of um, my lips and into all of our ears and our hearts. Do your work as you always are faithful to do in us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So like I said, we are in tonight the book of Hosea. And hopefully you've been able to find it already. Um, but if not, it comes after uh, Daniel. So it's, it's Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea. It's right before Joel, if that helps anybody in here. Maybe, maybe not so much. But we are going to be, like I said, tonight in the book of Hosea. And I have entitled this message, Faithful to the Faithless. And I think that's appropriate. I, I, I think it's appropriate to, to assign a certain theme to the book of Hosea, being God's faithfulness to his faithless people, Israel. And I hope that as we go through and we walk through this text, we're not going to go through all 14 chapters verse by verse, or we'd be here till next Sunday night, but we are going to look at just a, a broad overview, overview of the book of Hosea um, so that we can get, get a taste. And I want, to, I want to whet your appetite so that in your own 
personal study and your own time with the Lord, maybe even this next week, um, you would be uh, encouraged, motivated, and, and inspired, if you will, to, to look more deeply into the book of Hosea. But before we get into the actual text, I have a question. What do you think, this is a rhetorical question, but what do you think is the most important thing for your soul and your relationship to God? Maybe some of you are thinking about grace. Fair. Maybe some of you are thinking about mercy. Maybe some of you are thinking about love or kindness. And all those things are true in themselves. But what I want to make clear tonight and hopefully going forward is that those things in and of themselves are not enough. Is everybody awake? Everybody awake? They're not enough. And here's what, here's what I mean by that. If God is gracious, if we have grace today, but we don't have it tomorrow, are our souls secure? If God is merciful today, but he's not merciful tomorrow, are our souls secure? And I see, I see some heads nodding. The answer to that is, is no. If God shows grace to us one day, one moment, and he doesn't the next, and then he does the next, and then he doesn't the next, our souls aren't secure. What, what if we were to die in a state where he was not showing us grace? Obviously, all of this is highly hypothetical. But that, those things in and of themselves, by themselves, are not enough. God also must be faithful. His, his, his grace must be faithful grace. His mercy must be faithful mercy. His love must be faithful love. And thankfully, by His grace, if you will, it is faithful. He is faithful. And that's what we're going to see over and over and over again tonight as we look into the book of Hosea. So look uh, with me to Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. It reads, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So tonight I want to give us again an overview. I'm not going to be walking through every verse, an overview of Hosea. And I want to, and I want to split it up into three points. So if you're, if you're a note taker, if you're an outline person, here's your, here's your three-point outline. Number one, we're going to look at who Hosea himself is. Hosea himself. Number two, we're going to look at Hosea's moment. Hosea's moment. And number three, we are going to look at Hosea's message. So Hosea himself, Hosea's moment, and Hosea's message. Basically what I want to do is give you a biography, set some context historically. I know that sounds boring, but hopefully it won't be. Set some context historically, and then actually get into what are, what are some of the key verses, themes, things like that that we see in the book of Hosea. All right? So that 
is what we're going to do. And we're going to begin with, again, point number one, Hosea himself. Look back again at chapter one, verse one. This is basically the only biographical information we have of Hosea in the entire scriptures. We get one verse. He's the son of Beery. Now, that's not all that impressive. He has to be the son of somebody, and that somebody has to have a name. So this doesn't really tell us a whole lot about who Hosea is. But the next, um, the next phrase, if you will, the rest of the verse does give us some insightful information. It says, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. These were four kings of Judah who reigned in approximately about the 8th century B.C., be the 700s. B.C. And then he lists, he lists another king, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So to kind of catch you up in Israel's history, David, king of Israel, reigned around 1000 B.C. His son Solomon took his place in, in between the 900s and 1000s. After Solomon reigned, he had a son, and that son was a wicked son. His son um, 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 was a terrible leader. His son essentially split the empire, or the, the, the nation, if you will, into northern and southern kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel, as it was called in the north, and the kingdom of Judah, as it is called in the south. So that's why you have two different distinctions with who the kings are and where they are reigning. Israel and Judah. Now, Hosea himself is prophesying in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And the one king that is named there, Jeroboam, or Jeroboam II, as he is known, is not the only king that Hosea ministered under. There were six others. And this is going to start to help set our scene for Hosea's moment. So point number two, Hosea's moment. It's really important and it's going to continue to be important as we go through our, our series um, through the next several weeks, that, that as we are studying these books of the minor prophets, that we put ourselves in the moment. Because almost in every way we can think of, we are so different than the people who this letter was, or this prophecy was originally given to. We're, different, we're a different ethnicity. We live in a much different time. We have much different technology. We speak a different language. We have running, you know, water. We have air conditioning. Our worlds were incredibly different, are incredibly different. So we need to put ourselves in the moment. So what is the moment? Our first clue is what we were just referring to in the kings under which Hosea ministered. And particularly, particularly the king of the north, Jeroboam. Jeroboam's reign ended in the mid-700s, 750 approximately B.C. And following that, between 750 and 722, there were six kings who reigned over Israel. Four of those six were assassinated. So this is a, a point in time in Israel's history of political upheaval of political turmoil. And that marks Hosea's whole ministry. That's about the same time span that his ministry runs. Political turmoil. However, that was not the only thing going on. Israel itself had experienced a season of economic and social prosperity immediately preceding that and then even into that time period. So there's, there's more wealth. There's 
there's more power, there's presumably more people, because wealth usually brings more babies, um, and, and there's a prosperous time in Israel. But as we so um, all too unfortunately know, with prosperity also a lot of times comes immorality. And that had also taken front stage as well. Hosea himself actually references idolatry six different times in his letter. On top of that, the people were engaged in social injustices, violent crime, religious hypocrisy, political revolt, as we've already mentioned, um, sinful foreign, foreign alliances, selfish arrogance, spiritual ingratitude, and that's just what Hosea records. It's a bad time to be a righteous person, let alone a prophet in Israel, but so often the worst times are God's chosen times. And in fact, this all comes to culminate in the judgment that God promised to the people of Israel through his prophets in the invasion and exile through the nation of Assyria. In the mid-720s, towards the end of Hosea's ministry, the, uh, the Assyrian king Shalmaneser, is a good baby name, um, Shalmaneser invades Israel. And he, 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 um, he, he makes them his vassal. Makes them his vassal. No, this is foreign terms, foreign culture. He makes them his vassal. And what that basically meant was that he came in and he said, okay, Israel, I'm going to protect your physical, I'm going to provide your physical protection from enemies. But in turn, you are going to give me money, sort of like taxes, um, in return. But they're under the heel of Assyria. In 2 Kings 17, verses 1 through 5, we see what led to Israel's ultimate downfall. And what we see is that Israel had decided to withhold that tax money, if you will, or, or tribute, as it was called. We're not going to pay it. As you can imagine, that made the Assyrians not all too happy. So what they did is they come in, they, they, they siege and sack Israel, and they carry the people off into exile, fulfilling so many of the judgment passages that we would see in Hosea and that we would see in all the other books as well. So there's cultural prosperity for a time. There's political turmoil and upheaval. There's rank idolatry and immorality. There's Baal worship going on. There are threats from foreign powers. This is not exactly a time of peace for Hosea. This is the world that he is himself entering into. And he has a message for the people of Israel. And that message is this. Israel... You have a faithful God, and you have rebelled against him. And you need to turn from that rebellion, because if you don't, judgment is on the way. You have a faithful God, and you've rebelled against him. Turn from that rebellion, because judgment is on the way. That's the book of Hosea in a nutshell. So let's get a little bit deeper to Hosea's 
message. And to do that, to really understand where Hosea is coming from, we need to begin actually in the book of Deuteronomy. So flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 28. God has made a covenant with his people Israel. He has given them the law. And he is about to give them their land. They're on the border of the promised land, getting ready to enter. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. And going through the end of the chapter, God is going to deliver a clear-cut message to the people of Israel. If you obey, blessing. If you disobey, cursing. So he's going to split those up in the chapter, and we're going to read in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, the blessing for obedience. He says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then he goes on over the next 12 verses to list blessing after blessing after blessing. He begins in verse 15 to list the curses. He says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Cursed, 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 cursed. And he goes on and on and on and on through the end of chapter 28. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. So when Hosea comes as the prophet of Israel, and he's holding up God's word, and he's saying, thus says the Lord, All he's basically doing is, remember Deuteronomy 28? God meant what he said. God meant what he said. If you obey, there's blessing. If you disobey, if you rebel, there are curses. Hosea comes to a defiantly rebellious people and he reminds them of Deuteronomy chapter 28. It says God meant what he said. So go back to Hosea chapter 1. Deuteronomy is the background for Hosea, but what does Hosea himself have to say? And how does he say it? The first thing that he does, and he's told by the Lord to do this, is he delivers Israel an object lesson. This is common throughout the prophets. If you read major and minor prophets, prophets are told to do sometimes really strange things, like Ezekiel is told to lay on his side with his arm in the air for a certain number of days and then go lay on the other side and do all sorts of weird stuff. And um, 
And Hosea is told to do something just as odd, if not even more odd and uncomfortable. In chapter 1 and chapter 3, we're going we're gonna to see what the Lord t- tells Hosea to do. So beginning in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. So Hosea is told to do some pretty odd things here. God tells him, Hosea, I want you to go marry a woman. And what's the first thing that we find out about this woman? She's an adulterer. So, so, So Hosea is going into this marriage, an actual marriage that actually took place, knowing that this woman is going to be unfaithful to him knowing that she is going to, as we would say, cheat on him, knowing that she is going to pursue other lovers. We see three other things here. They have three children. They have kind of odd names. The first is Jezreel. And it says, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. This name prophesies judgment. The power of your nation, O Israel, is going to be broken. The second child is called No Mercy, or, or some of your Bibles might say Lo Ruhama. That's just Hebrew for no mercy or no pity. He says, for I will have, no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. By the way, that's a scary place to be. No more mercy. Time is out. No mercy. The third child, not my people, or your Bible might say, lo ami, says, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. It's also a pretty scary statement. So we have Jezreel predicting judgment. We have no mercy or lo ruhamah. No, no mercy. And then you have lo ami, not my people. All of these three, as the children of this adulterous woman, are an example, an object lesson in the fruit of Israel's adultery. The fruit of the womb of the adulterous woman 
represents the fruit of Israel's spiritual adultery, destruction, and rejection. As you see, there's a sprinkle of hope in verse 10. He doesn't say, I'm going to reject you forever, where it says, not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. But nevertheless, this object lesson um, speaks a dark message. That's not all of it. He continues. Look at chapter 3. He continues this object lesson to chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. By the way, that's that's the price of buying a slave. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So this object lesson continues. True to prophecy, Hosea's wife has been unfaithful. And she has put herself in some sort of position, it's not clear exactly what that is, of presumably slavery. So Hosea is told, go get your wife, buy her out of slavery, and bring her back. Restore her. That's the object lesson completed. So, Hosea, marry an adulterous woman. Name your three children that come from that adulterous relation or that come from that relationship with that adulterous woman. Destruction and rejection. But when she goes off and she strays and when she when she plays the whore, when she commits adultery, bring her back. Buy her back. Redeem her, restore her. Why? Because Hosea is supposed to represent a faithful God by being a faithful husband. That's an object lesson for chapter 2 and then chapter 4 through 14, where God is going to turn the attention from Hosea, and he's going to say, Hosea, take this object lesson and go preach it to the people. Go preach it to the people. That's the message of Hosea. Hosea, throughout his letter, is going to go back and forth from pronouncements of judgment to pronouncements of mercy, calls, to repentance. If you want a basic outline, he's going to go from judgment in chapter 1, verses 2 through 9, to salvation in chapter 1, verses 10 through 2, verse 1. Judgment again in chapter 2, 2 through 13. And salvation again in chapter 2, verses verses 14 through chapter 3, verse 5. Judgment in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5 through 14. 5, verse 14, excuse me. 
to salvation in chapter 5, verse 15, to chapter 6, verse 3. Judgment again in 6, 4 through 11, 7. Salvation again in 11, 8 through 11. Judgment again in 11, 12 through 13, 16. Salvation again, and to cap it off in chapter 14. Judgment and salvation and judgment and salvation. Israel, turn, come back. I'm a faithful God if you will just return, repent from your sins. From judgment to salvation to judgment to salvation. Some of the key verses in Hosea and sections are chapter 1 and chapter 3, which we just read. Chapter 2, verse 13, gives us a, a, a clear description of this judgment. He says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. I will punish her for her idolatry. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 23 this section speaks of the restoration of the people of Israel. I'll just give you a a sample of that, just in contrast to chapter 1, all the way down in chapter, in, in verse 23. He says, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. God is a faithful God. He didn't have to extend this mercy to Israel. He's faithful. Chapter 10, verse 12. We see one of God's calls to the people of Israel to return. He says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Israel, return. Chapter 11, verse 1, a verse that might sound familiar to you. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse that Matthew quotes. Chapter 12, verse 6, another call to return. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Israel, return, come back, repent. Chapter 13, verses 7 through 14. And I want to spend a little bit more time in these and just reading them. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk. By the way, he's talking about Israel. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my, my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. 
For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Another verse might sound familiar. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Jump to verse, jump to chapter 14. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. We're not going to trust in this nation who has promised to protect us if we will just give them this tribute. And we're not going to worship our idols anymore. Verse 4, I love this. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, another synonymous term for Israel, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So I, I hope as we've seen the, the, the oscillation Judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. Israel return, Israel return. He ends with this call to return, saying these beautiful words, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. So Hosea is saying, Israel, you have a faithful God, but you've rebelled against your God. And you deserve judgment for that rebellion. But if you will turn, that faithful God will love you freely like a faithful husband loves his unfaithful wife. I will love them freely. This prophet we know so little about in this time that is just full of the swirling winds of culture political enemies, prosperity, idolatry, rank and morality, things that we are not all too unfamiliar with. This man steps in with this message. And it's by God's grace that that message has been preserved for us today. Because the reality is the same faithful, 
covenant-keeping God. It's described in Hosea and so many of the other minor prophets. Notice this as we keep going in our series. Lots of the prophecies end with promises of restoration, hope, mercy. The same God who has made these prophecies and these promises lives today. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he does not change in his character. Amen? He does not change in his character. The same faithful God is faithful to his people still today. We are Gomer, not Gomer Pyle. Gomer, the unfaithful wife. Not saying that Hosea was prophesying about us, he was prophesying about Israel. But see yourself in Gomer. Our hearts are infested with idols. We have idol believers, it's it's true. We have an idol infestation in our hearts. And although for a believer, none of those idols will supremely rule our hearts. We're not slaves to them. They are still there. So what, what is our hope? What's our hope? Believer, brothers and sisters, did you know that you are a child of God today because God has been faithful to you? Did you know that you will still be a child of God tomorrow when you wake up? Because God is faithful to you. That 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, you will still be a child of God because God is faithful to you. I don't know about you, but that's a hard thing for me to believe sometimes. Especially when I look at my own heart and I see just a, just a small picture of the idol factory, as Calvin calls it, that just keeps pumping them out. Just keeps pumping them out. But we need this hope because we all go through seasons of unfaithfulness, where it might be tempting to think in those seasons, God must not love me anymore. Maybe it's a season of rebellion and sin. Maybe it's a season of suffering. God, this is what Job was being told by his friends. How did you sin, Job? Nobody, no righteous person gets this kind of treatment gets this kind of like, how did you sin? Sometimes we buy that. I must be suffering because I've sinned in some way. That's a lie, by the way. Maybe it's a season of just spiritual dryness. Maybe you can't explain it. You're just, you're not in a hill. You're not really in a valley. You're just kind of in a plateau. Maybe you're questioning things. Certain points of doctrine and theology or ethical 
issues. There's constant attacks. If you're questioning your own salvation, if that is you, I want to speak to you and I want Hosea to be speaking to you tonight. And I want to say that the basis, the grounds, the foundation of your hope and your relationship with God is solely, fully His faithfulness. You need one thing and one thing only, and that is the faithfulness of God. So what do we do? What do we do when we go through those seasons and we do wonder, does God still love me? Or maybe how could God still love me? <clears throat> do we look back at our, our track record over the last month where we've maybe had more good weeks than bad weeks? Say, so, okay, I must be good. Do we go and we ask a friend or a mentor or a spouse? And they say, no, 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 I think you're saved. Don't worry about it. That could be helpful, right? Do we look back on a moment where we made a decision for Christ? We, we walked the aisle, we signed the card, we prayed the prayer, said, come as you are, and I came, right? Could that be when you got saved? Could that be helpful? Sure. Sure. But people make false professions of faith all the time, right? And, and that person who you've asked about your soul's state doesn't know your heart. They can't see your heart. And while you may have had more good weeks than bad weeks in the last month, there's certainly been months within the last year where you've probably had more bad weeks than good weeks, more bad days than good days, more valleys than hills. So while all of those things, and we could list others, right? While all of those things may be helpful in reassuring us, may be helpful in giving us confidence that our relationship with God is right. The only thing, and I mean the only thing, that can provide the basis for that comfort, for that peace of our relationship with God is His faithfulness. And that's it. Not our faithfulness to Him, because that's going to wax and that's going to wane. But it's His faithfulness to us. How is it that God can be so faithful, though? How is it that God could be so faithful to Israel? How is it that God can be so faithful to us? It's because every single ounce of our faithlessness that we lived in before we were believers and that so often we struggle with now, every single ounce of that was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And every single spiritual ounce, however you measure that, of faithfulness in Christ, that he lived every second of his life on earth in perfect, sinless faithfulness and obedience to his Father, was credited to us, was, was imputed to us. 
right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died with our faithlessness on his back and our faith and his faithfulness then has been given to us, has been credited to us. He was buried and he rose again so that we might have newness of life. So those idols that we could never shake, the sin that we were enslaved to before as people with new life in Christ, we're dead to and we're alive to him. God's faithfulness given through the cross and that alone is going to bring peace to those times when we may be doubting. The question is, will you trust him? Will you, will you look to that, what he did, his faithfulness, and say, yeah, that's enough? And, and those sins that maybe are taking a hold in your heart, believer, and we have them, I have them, you have them. Will you turn from them when you find them? Just like Israel was called to turn from their idolatry, from their immorality, will you turn from, the, from those sins? If you will, then the kind, merciful, gracious, loving faithfulness of the creator of the universe is yours. Turn to Second Thessalonians, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 5. One of my favorite verses, or set of verses in the New Testament. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. And Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the book of Hosea. And if this was the first time looking at the book of Hosea for anyone in here, I, I pray that it, it excited in them a desire to do further study, to commit time to diving deeper into what it means for you to be a faithful God to a faithless people. Lord, we confess our so frequent unfaithfulness to you. Our hearts constantly wander after idols. But we praise you and we thank you that the one thing that will keep us in relationship with you is your great faithfulness. I pray for anybody in here who isn't a believer that they would have gotten but a taste 
of a faithful God. They would be so attracted and enamored and drawn to him by your spirit so as to put their faith and turn from their sins. As pray for any believer in here who's struggling with their assurance, struggling with their relationship with the Lord for whatever reason. I pray, for, I pray that if it's sin, that they would turn. But in any case, Lord, that they would not turn to themselves, that they would not look at their own performance, others' opinions, or anything else, but they would turn and look to you, the faithful God, who gave his son so that they could be saved. We ask these things for your glory and in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.